Welcome to Inside Angle. This is Gordon Moore, Senior Medical Director for 3M Health Information Systems. And today I'm talking with Dr. Alan Glazeroff, who is a guy I've known for years, who's done incredibly innovative work in primary care and has been called up to Stanford to do incredibly interesting work with them. And I want to explore with him today uh, what that work is and what the implications are for healthcare transformation nationally and how we can learn lessons from what he's done and uh, see where we can go with that. So welcome, Alan. Nice to talk to you, Gordon. So, Alan, tell me a little bit about your role and your background and how you came to be at Stanford. Well, I'm a, I'm a family physician by training, and I'm 66 years old, so that gives me 35-plus years in practice post-residency. And I have always been interested in people who have chronic diseases and complex problems, largely triggered by uh, developing type 1 diabetes when I was 31 years old. And and had already finished my medical training. And the experience of being a patient with a chronic illness that at that time, and we're talking about 1983, was treated as uh, essentially hopeless by the medical profession. And certainly my training in my medical school and residency background taught me that the best I could expect was a shortened life that would include suffering. And the goal should be to avoid low blood sugars. So run, you know, run a high blood sugar all the time. Um, and this was before there were any studies of tight control causing fewer complications for people. So when, I, when that happened and I had to suddenly live with this because I was very sick at the time, I, I said to myself, I will not let that be true. And I'm going to pursue tight control on, for myself. And, and I'll prove to everybody else that I'm as healthy as anyone. And it was almost a, an emotional gut response to the sense of hopelessness that came with the diagnosis. So, you know, I went about my way learning to self-manage using the brand new device called the glucometer that had been released about a year before I uh, developed the condition and then found myself surrounded by other patients with the same illness in the community I was working in who came to me saying, oh, it's so great that someone actually understands what we're going through. And then I said, I don't understand very much. I just got this. Can you help me figure out how to live with it? And we became a, my practice became a peer group, essentially. And over time, you know, we focusing on self-management. And I did that in a pretty inefficient way because I, I tried to be the endocrinologist because the town I worked in didn't have one. I tried to be the dietitian. I tried to be the exercise therapist. I took on all the roles dealing with the depression. And it turned out it all worked on me and on most of the people that I was taking care of who learned to use the glucometer to, to self-adjust their insulin based on what their blood sugar is before a meal and what they're about to eat. And, and to put this in context, it was eight years before the first uh, diabetes control and complications trial results came out, which showed that uh, tight control greatly lowered risk of diabetic complications. So that, that's where I began. And then that played into other roles I had, including being chief medical officer of a, a countywide uh, independent practice association. Plus, my wife and I were always in practice together half-time. She was the public health officer, 
And it kept escalating through grant funding and statewide programs to be more and more work. And then finally, uh, while we were wondering where to go next with that work, we got called by Arnie Milstein at Stanford, who had, prior to coming to Stanford, had been the medical director for the Pacific Business Group on Health, to come open a new program for high-cost, high-needs patients that Arnie labeled the Ambulatory Intensive Caring Unit. And uh, we came here to invent a new model, and, and he called it AICU 2.0. And we spent six months developing it and then opened it in the spring of 2012. And now it's six years old, thriving. Though Ann and I retired as clinicians uh, end of December 2016. So now my function is to spread what we learned about team care, about patient engagement, about patient activation, and how to give better care that also save money for the health system as a whole. Where we work now is at a place called the Clinical Excellence Research Center at Stanford, and Arnie is the head of that. And it's one of the few uh, think tanks in the country that's specifically focused on lowering the cost of care while doing a better job. Those things may sound in conflict, but they actually fit well together. And I think the, the thought has always been that there's enough waste and inefficiency in healthcare that if we could unmask that and focus on the things that are really appropriate or likely to reduce unnecessary costs through better efficiency and therefore achieve better outcomes. It sounds like you've done that. And so uh, before we get into the how did you get there, a little bit about how did you know that you'd achieve these kind of results? And can you quantify that at all? So, so it's a very, very interesting issue. And because how to measure this is uh, fraught with uh, difficulty. Uh, and I think there are people around the country grappling with that and struggling to come up with a good methodology. Most of these programs are relatively small. And the Stanford program, which is called Stanford Coordinated Care, we probably had 700 patients total over the period of time that we've been open, which is not enough to power a good study. And, and then there's the whole issue of, do you do a randomized control trial, which turns out to be politically very difficult in a situation where you're offering a heightened service to people in need, but only some people get it and, and some people get usual care. And that wouldn't work with the politics on campus. And our program was designed for employees and their dependents of Stanford. And they Stanford runs its own health plan. So it, it gave us a self-funded health plan to work with. We were able to avoid fee-for-service entirely. When I think about powering a study, one of the things is the balance between the frequency of things and the breadth of the population you're addressing. So uh, you focused on very high needs individuals where the frequency of bad stuff might have been higher. Therefore, you might have seen results sooner. I think that that's true. But the dilemma is in comparing it to a control group. You know, there are many efforts that say, you know, last year the ERA was an X and we cut it in half. But then you look at another population and you're trying to match the other population. And you can look at age and sex and you can look at what diseases they have. But you have a great difficulty separating a patient with diabetes, for instance, whose A1C is 16 and another one who's 6. Because the claims, uh, at least in when we began, which was in the ICD-9 era, didn't really allow for that level of matching or the multiplicity of conditions because the average patient that we took in 
And we aim for what was called the quote unquote top 5% in terms of predictive risk, which usually is consistent with cost, that it was very hard to pull matched controls that you could compare the work to. So before and after is not a problem, but it doesn't really prove much. We're still struggling to understand what's the best methodology. And one of the things that I think we've seen done very well around the country, and it was done at Denver Health in Colorado, they, rather than looking at what happened to a cohort of people over time, they divide their patients into four tiers, with tier four being the sickest. And they work on the people who are in tier four at the time that they're in it, even though over two thirds of them regress to the mean the following year, which is why before and after studies are so troublesome. And, and what they've shown is that they've been able to lower the total cost of care in tier four for the people currently in it stably over time, rather than follow the individuals year to year. So it's, it's a non-cohort approach. It's more of an actuarial approach. So is this the method you guys used at uh, Stanford? No, we, 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 it's what I think should have been done, but there were things at Stanford that prevented us doing it, largely because it, the numbers were so small. And we tended to keep the patients that we had because they came in costing $43,000 and had 10.9 distinct real problems on their problems per patient. So it, everybody was interested in how do you discharge these patients now that they're better in three months. And what we found is that, that we were forced to discharge them into a really dysfunctional primary care environment and they would regress. People left Stanford and then they were no longer our patients because they weren't covered on the health plan, we found the whole discharge discussion or graduation, though it, it is very much, sorry, you're doing too well for us and go home. And the reason for that is that the service costs more than normal primary care cost. The average patient in the system didn't have 10.9 problems and was feeling a total lack of trust with the healthcare system, which is what most of the people we saw felt. You mentioned care teams. Uh, well, so why don't you describe what you put together? What's interesting is sort of the approach we took, and then, then I'll get to what it looked like. You know, we, we used a, a technique that was developed in the Bay Area around, you know, in Silicon Valley and was put forth internationally by a company called IDEO, I-D-E-O. And, and what they do is a thing called human-centered design. And in fact, an entity was created on the Stanford campus called the Design School, which came out of IDEO's work and was founded by IDEO. And the idea is that if you're designing something to work with end users, it really behooves you to understand the end users' challenges and successes and what they think is wrong with the system. Even if they don't always know what the answer should be, they certainly are great advocates for what's wrong. They can describe it in great detail, often on a personal level, uh, as to what didn't work. And then you can find people who, despite that, succeeded, who are the kind of the, a certain end of the bell-shaped curve of everybody in that position. And these were the kind of the overachiever group. And then compare it to the underachiever group who were doing the worst. And the difference is what you need to supply in your program. So we went through a very rigorous process and then designed a program based on seven elements of care. The most important one of them being relationships. 
is what people were calling for. And, and that resonated with me because of my exposure to the work of Doug Evie and Nuka Foundation in Alaska through work at IHI that both of us participated in in years past. And they went to the tribe that they represented. It's a healthcare system, you know, working with Indians from Anchorage, Alaska, all the way to the Bering Sea that was bankrupt and had terrible outcomes. And they just said, we can't do worse. Let's try something different. And the different was calling the tribe together and finding out what they actually wanted. And what they wanted was relationships. And they realized the relationship generally didn't come from the doctor who was often a transplant to the area and not culturally embedded in people that they were serving, but rather from other people. And then that created team care. So our our model of team care included empaneling medical assistants and training them up, having them in the room during the visits and other crucial conversations with patients, teaching them to describe the visits, which allowed the clinician to always be face-to-face with eye contact to the patient. The clinician still had a job to write the assessment and plan. It was about a three- or four-minute activity and was always done by the end of the day. And the patients then trusted the MAs, who we called care coordinators, because they were part of the conversations they were having when they came in and were talking about their problems. Our approach also included focusing on the goals of the patient, which is sometimes called self-identified goals, rather than our goals. And, And an example being a man came in who was a retired person who worked in construction and did some contracting work as a carpenter. And his wife worked at Stanford as a librarian. And he came in, dragged in by his wife, very angry guy. And his it turned out his A1C was 16, his LDL cholesterol was 391, and his blood pressure was 180 over 130. And what bothered him was palpitations. And, and he had heard Stanford had some ablation procedure that could take care of it. So that's what he came for. And I just sat there and I said, 16, what happened to you that your A1C is 16? And he told me this story of uh, being yelled at by a dietician because he was eating a low-carbohydrate diet that was working fairly well for him. And she told him he was an idiot and he needed to follow the food pyramid. And he got so angry, he stormed out of that session and didn't take another pill or go back to anybody for the next two years. So finally, he comes in to see me, and I I said to him, I said, that must have been really horrible to go through that experience, given how smart and motivated you were at that time. Do I have it right? And he said, you absolutely nail it. And and I showed him his data, A1C, blood pressure, and uh, LDL, but I made no comment. I just showed it to him. And then the first visit ended, and I right at the end of the first visit, I said, I have one request of you. I'm a little nervous doing it, given you know, your past experience. And, and he said, well, what's that? And I said, would you take a baby aspirin? And he, he looked at me and he says, yeah, I'll do that. And he actually came back a couple days later, you know, sooner than we had originally thought. And he said, shouldn't I do something about my diabetes? And I looked at him and I said, great idea. That's and, great. But it was his idea, not mine. Because I figured other people had come at him and it hadn't worked. So... You know, fast forward six months, his A1C is six, his blood pressure and cholesterol under fine control. It turns out his palpitations virtually vanished. So it was all working on what what bothers you the most? What goals do you have? You know, when a goal is defined as where do you want to be in a year, 
if it, everything went well. And for him, it was, he also had knee pain from arthritis. You know, I, I want my knees not to hurt and I want my palpitations to go away. Those are his two goals. And then what we set forth was working with him using techniques stolen from motivational interviewing to help him achieve action plans to get to that. And we had story after story after story where this technique worked. And it was focusing on patient goals, building trust by listening, not telling people what to do, but asking them what they thought they should do. And it turns out the the thing that really drives the successful work in patients who are high cost, high needs, who are dealing with multiple comorbidities is self-management. So then we, we got into, well, how do you measure self-management? And, and we latched onto the patient activation measure that was developed by Judith Hibbert at Oregon Health Sciences in Portland. And, and using that tool, it turned out to be the perfect measure of the effectiveness of our clinic. My wife and I, and her name is Ann Lindsay, we were faculty to an I, both IHI collaboratives called Better Health at Lower Cost for three, three years. But before that, with a CMMI grant called Intensive Outpatient Care Program that included 15,000 senior patients who were high risk. And we had pre and post patient activation measure scores over, you know, it separated originally by at least six months. And we were able to see what happened to the claims in the people whose activation score stayed the same, got better, or got worse across 25 medical groups using our care model. How'd that come out? And so what it showed was a linear relationship between activation change and cost and health. That sounds very consistent with Judy Hibbert's work. I, I think she published quite a bit on the link between patient activation and various rates of bad things happening or going down because when, when activation goes up and obviously that would have a solitary effect on cost. Right. What was different about our study, and it's actually out there for publication and I'm being reviewed at the moment, so I can't go into it in great deal. But what was really interesting is it's how you end up that matters, not where you start from. And I think that's a really hopeful message for people. And hope is a really important ingredient for people faced with multiple chronic conditions. Unpack that a little bit for me. It matters more how you end up with than where you start from. What do you mean? So, so if, if you, let's say you measure PAM at the onset of your interaction with a patient, and then you measure it again a year later, if they start as a one, which is a low score, which indicates denial or hopelessness in, in someone, you know, something bad has happened that has them not doing things that are in their interest. And the patient I described earlier is a perfect example of that. And they end up a three or a four. Their outcomes are as good as somebody who started as a three or a four. So it's not an inherent characteristic of people. It's a changeable behavior. Nice. And that's really promising. And then what we did in the collaborative was give people the means to raise activation. And what was that? The single most important one is frequent follow-up. And this was affirmed in a study that Judith and a woman named Jessica Green did, I believe, in 2016. And what they found is frequent follow-up is the single hardest thing to deliver in primary care. Let me give an example. If a patient says, you know, I'm going to start walking on Tuesday, do you wait to see how it went for three months when they come back for their routine follow-up? Or do you call them Wednesday to see how it and, and it's hard for doctors to manifest that people are busy all day long. What we did was that became the role of the care coordinator, medical assistant, 
for their panel of patients. And they were in the room when the goals were set, if it was visit-based. We were not primarily visit-based. We also did telephone and home visits and a very robust use of the patient portal and patient messaging. But the, the, the key thing was close follow-up, and if it didn't work, how do we fix it? You know, what obstacle did you succumb to in getting it done? It might be, you know, I didn't bring an umbrella in the rain. Let's get an umbrella. So what we saw was improvement with the MAs fully capable of doing that kind of work. The other magic of empaneling the MAs is it gave them responsibility for people, though it was a shared responsibility with other members on the team. But when you have responsibility for people and not just a, a list of tasks, it changes the whole feeling. And, and clinicians have known this for a long time in primary care that you know you feel responsible for your panel and connected to them. Whereas MAP felt that way, but it, what they were told to do is go do this, go do that. Now they had the responsibility for having people get better. And it turned out they were phenomenal at that, if not better than us, you know, the clinicians. And then we had protocols to back them up in med refills and HEDIS measures. And, you know, we were not above the 90th percentile for HEDIS across the board, achieving hypertension control rates of 90%, colorectal cancer screening rates of 90%. Mammogram rates of 90%. These are pretty good numbers. And Stanford was well below that in general. And docs would come to me saying, you know, how did you do that? And I'd say, it's really simple. I didn't touch it because it was done by the MAs using standing orders as the basis. And they would say, do it for me. And the patients would say, you know, Delilah, I'll do anything for you. You helped me so much. Of course, I'll do a colorectal cancer test or a mammogram. Or a... So it, it put emphasis on what happened between visits was more important than what happened during visits. So let me propose a payment model shift that may explain why this is not widespread. What I suspect is that when you have a global payments that is less interested in all the nickel and dime billing stuff that you might do in a fee-for-service environment, the global payment can allow you to shift resource allocation in the way you deliver primary care, and that's how you can afford an MA to do stuff and have non-visit-based care. Is that essential, do you think? So it's certainly what we thought going into it and why we created the model we had. And the model also included behavioral health and physical therapy, a pharmacist, a nurse who, who handled extremely difficult patients, such as people who exist on TPN, for instance. But people have come and learned the model from us because we run a team training center at Stanford. And one of them was Bellin Health in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And we met them through triple aim work at IHI, and they were sort of the star of the triple aim world. And, and they brought a team to our team training in 2014. And their team included the medical director, other doctors, their improvement advisor, medical assistants and nurses, and somebody from admin. And they, they started out kind of skeptical, but what brought them to our office was that they had kind of late career, but not end of career internists and family docs who were saying, if I could quit, I would. I don't like my job anymore. And that was their reason for exploring team care. And at the end of the two-day training, one of the docs said, I now get it. The opposite of patient-centered care is physician-centered care. And they went home and we had little contact with them to watch the charting aspect and inbox management done by the MAs. And we were on Epic and they were on Epic. They were want to see exactly how we did it. And then they went home and then at, at IHI, at the practice summit, office redesign summit, 
this past spring, I attended a workshop that they put on and they had implemented exactly our model in a largely fee-for-service environment across 95 practice sites. And it was mind-blowing. How do you afford this? Because it's roughly two MAs per clinician and the MA panels are smaller than a physician panel. How did they afford it? So they afforded it by billing for the care transitions code, the care management codes, the welcome to Medicare code and the annual wellness visit. And those things actually made it the hiring a break even financially. So the different payment model is helpful, but not essential. Right. And then if you add in what's the cost of replacing a burned out physician or a burned out nurse or a burned out MA, the ROI was very much in the positive. So it it actually, I think, works under fee-for-service. Christine Sinsky, who does a lot of work with the AMA around the joy of practice, she does what we do but uses nurses and has two per doc. And they also, in a fee-for-service environment, found that uh, this model worked. And for them, the difference was it allowed them to see two more patients a day on average. Wow. So, so ideally, you're capitated and have a shared savings arrangement with the payer, which is what we did at Stanford. But even in fee-for-service, this is viable. So, Alan, I'm going to wrap us up and want to ask you before we go if there are essential things we missed or summations that you think would be helpful. You know, I think that the human-centered design piece is really, really interesting. And, you know, we're trying to apply what our, our friend at IHI and now in Oregon uh, said one day at IHI many years ago, which is, you know, we have a system based on evolution, but we need one based on intelligent design. Chuck Kylo said that, and I remember it well the day he said it. And I left there thinking, how do you do intelligent design in healthcare? It's not just a bunch of experts thinking up what healthcare is supposed to look like. It has to start with what people want and need. So when we were recruiting people to our program and we first opened, we were surprised that a service which was completely free to the patients and gave them much higher level of contact and care and access wasn't immediately popular. So we went out and interviewed the people who had said no to us and also interviewed people that had said yes to us and to try to figure out the difference. And and the people that said no to us were saying, this is too good to be true. But they also said, I don't understand what a chronic disease is. I have hypertension and diabetes and hyperlipidemia and hypothyroidism and asthma, let's say, but I don't have any chronic diseases because that means it's hopeless. So we stopped using that word and, and they became ongoing conditions. And then all the things we were promising people, they really didn't care much about it except the most important one, which simply was, if your care needs can't be met in a 15-minute visit. And that turned out to be the magic potion for recruitment. And then the job was, let's earn these people's trust right away by showering them with love and affection and access. And then once we had that, then they would rapidly improve. So we, we saw the improvement generally within six months of enrollment. It started around three months. And then the question is, how do you maintain it? Some people, if their PAM score goes to a four, which is the top level, they're likely going to be able to maintain it. And if it, if it stays as a two or a three, they probably need continued support. So if people are looking for a way to graduate people, PAM is probably the way to judge it. Well, Dr. Glazeroff, thank you so much for your time today. And I will make sure to link some of the materials you had sent before and look forward to future conversations. I look forward to it as well. For Inside Angle, this is Gordon Moore. 
You can find more podcast episodes at www.3mhisinsideangle.com.